We're back in the Gospel of John, so if you want to go ahead and grab your Bible, if you have one, your electronic device, again, you can follow along on the screen. Back in the day when I was a kid, uh, I don't remember what state park we were at, but we came across one of these old-fashioned hand pump water spouts. I don't know if you ever have ever seen one of these before, but obviously they're connected to a well. And as kids, I remember we would when we saw this, and it must have been in a state park that we went to several times because I remember uh, this experience uh, several times in my mind, and we would run ahead of my parents, and then I would jump up and grab that bar, and I could barely reach it, and I would just start to try to pull it to make the water come out. If you don't know what, what it does, you, as you crank the, the, the pole there, that water comes out the spout. And, and so we would try, and nothing would happen. And then my dad would come over, and he would grab hold, and he said, okay, kids, get down, get ready, get down by the water, the spout. And the spout was like an open spout. And so my dad would crank it. It would take a couple times to kind of prime it, you know. And as soon as he got a couple um, cranks there, that the water would just gush out all over us. And we'd been hot from this hiking trip. And here was the water just gushing out over us. And I thought this was a beautiful illustration about grace today because this passage talks so much about grace and uses like the, the song that we sang at the beginning from for, from his fullness, verse 16, we have received grace upon grace. Just grace upon grace that we've received from Jesus. He's a continual fountain that's just gushing with grace for us. And so many times that we are unwilling to get under his fountain of grace in order to receive the grace that he has for his children. And so if we want to get wet with God's grace, we have to get under the fountain and trust that God will send the water. It's going to come. Just wait for it. It's going to come, I promise you. And then God begins to gush it out through Jesus Christ. And so that's kind of a snapshot of the passage. There's so much meat here. There's so much. This sermon could be three weeks easy within itself. And we're going to try to look at this just in one day. So let's look at John chapter 1, verse 14 through 18. I'll read it for us and then we'll pray. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about this and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for your word that gives us truth. And God, for your Holy Spirit that lives within your children, who takes this truth and illuminates it into our lives. And for your conviction of your word and the Holy Spirit using your word to guide us. We know that we live in difficult times. We live in tough times. We live in times where truth is optional for society, that no one wants to believe anything to do with your word and scripture, God. You have been rejected. And God, more and more we see this. And as parents and as a church, we, we desire to see the next generation rise up and continue. And God, we pray that your word will do its work today to see that happen. In Jesus' name, amen. 
So verse 14, the word became flesh. We saw this back in verse 1, that this word, the word word was logos in the original language. And to the Greeks, this was some kind of reason or logic. It was an abstract force that brought order and harmony into the universe. But John takes this word and turns it and says, the logos of God is not this impersonal force. The logos is a person. It's not a concept. It's Yahweh God, and in Christ, God became a man. The eternal divine son, who he said back in verse one, who was in the beginning with God, now has become flesh. And John spends so much time on this because it's such an amazing, amazing truth that he's breaking down for us. And so he returns even to to John, who he talked about, John the Baptist. Last week we talked about John the Baptist, and he points to the fact that John confirmed that Jesus was so much more than a man. Look in verse 15. John bore witness about Jesus, and he cried out, This is he whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. And so John is a witness of the eternality of Jesus Christ. He says, hey, Jesus was born after me. His ministry started after me, but trust me, he was before me. Jesus is eternal. And now you remember Jesus and John were cousins, but he recognizes who Jesus was. He's the eternal God in the person of Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, and the word became flesh. God didn't send a messenger, he didn't send a prophet, he didn't send some cosmic event in the sky. He sends Jesus. God became flesh. The word became flesh, took on human form. Think about that. Think about that the human side of Jesus, that Jesus was all man, truly all man and all God. He didn't have to choose one or the other. He could be both. So he took on this dusty frame of this first century Israelite man, and he revealed the truth of God, who God was to us. So the God of the universe in a body like yours and mine. It's beyond our comprehension. And this wasn't just some flesh costume that God put on, that Jesus had on, to appear like he was like one of us. Jesus was through and through human. God became flesh. Body, mind, emotions, his will, all the elements that make a person human, Jesus became flesh. He became body, mind, emotions, and will. The word became flesh. And then he says, not only did he become flesh, but he dwelt among people that he created. I think of the song, the author climbs inside of the page, the playwright took the stage. That's the picture here. He's not this remote deity that the Greeks philosophized about. He was the creator who came and dwelt with his creation. He laughed with people. Jesus cried with people. Jesus watched the sunrise in the morning as he prayed to his father. He watched the sunset. He understood what it was like to be human. That's amazing. It's amazing. The author of Hebrews says that this not only was just an amazing truth, but it also gives Jesus the unique ability. Look what verse 15, it'll be on the screen of of chapter four. It says that as our high priest, he is sympathetic to our weaknesses. Why? Because as he dwelt among us, he faced all the same testing and trials that we face, but unlike us, he did not sin. So it says he was able to sympathize. 
Jesus, think about that, feels for you in your struggle, in your temptation, because he experienced the exact same things that you experience, is what Scripture says. And as you go through trials, as you go through struggles, Jesus tells us, I understand. I was human. I understood. I understand what it's like to be in pain. I understand what it's like to lose someone. I understand what it's like to have people betray you and turn their back on you. I understand what it's like to be gossiped about and talked about and looked down upon. Jesus understands that. And not only does he understand that, he understands it better than we do. He understands the gravity, the weight of temptation even better than us. I used to think, you know, when I, when I go through struggles or as I go through struggles as a younger man, I would think, Jesus, how can you relate to this? Because you're so, I mean, you were God and, you know, here I am just a man. How can, I, how can you really relate to it? But God not only re- relates to us and sympathizes with it because he went through it, he understands it to a much greater degree than we do. Let me illustrate this real quick. Jerry's going to come help me here for a second. Let me illustrate how that Jesus is able to not only sympathize with our weaknesses, but he understands it more than you can even imagine. Imagine that, uh, and this is, I lifted little weights to get up here. We could, I know this guy could handle way more than that, but these are eight pounders. But suppose that he, he and I both hold this out in front of us, okay? I don't care if it is eight pounds. Over time, it's going to get pretty heavy, all right? So let's suppose that I'm holding this weight, he's holding that weight, and he's representing Jesus' far stretch, okay? But use your imagination, all right? We're holding this out, and this is representative of temptation that comes at us. Okay, what do we do? At some point, we begin to cave in. If temptation and struggle and trial enough, at some point, our humanity and our flesh and our weakness will cause us to begin to cave in under the pressure. But Jesus never caved in. He never gave in. The temptation was never too much that he didn't bear it. So he not only went as far as we're able to go, he went further and further. And not only the fact that we deal with temptation, we know that, keep going there, man, you got this, right? Um, Not only do we get tempted, we get tempted by demonic forces, Scripture says. But look, the, the main tempter himself, Satan, came at Jesus. And Jesus was so important, he was the, Satan knew how important Jesus was, and so he sent his complete arsenal, you got this? All right, he sent his complete arsenal at, I'll, I'll let y'all talk, thank you, man. <laughs> he sent, he sent, Satan came himself to Jesus. And so he gets it. He gets it, and more. He gets the fact that what you're struggling with, and so much more, because he went through and withstood and went to points that we've never even imagined going to. Do you get that? Does that mean anything to you? Think about the the struggle and the temptation specifically lately that you've been dealing with. Think about the trial that's been beating you down, the thoughts that have been rattling around in your head, maybe the temptation that's in the form of a person or a situation. Think about what's specific to you. And then think you're thinking, I can't do this. And Jesus says, I've been there. I've gone through so much more than that. Really, Jesus, have you? I have. Trust me. Look to me. Put your eyes on me. And he gives us strength because he's able to not only sympathize with us, but he's the great high priest who makes intercession to the Father on our behalf. He's praying for us. And so Christ endured the temptation as an example. He was tempted. And that's, that's a good reminder, too. Right? 
that the scripture tells us that Jesus was tempted, that there's no temptation that we're not able to bear. The fact is, temptation is not the sin. We all, don't feel when you're tempted, don't think, I thought I was beyond that temptation. I thought I was more mature to have to deal with that temptation. The temptation is going to come. And probably, truthfully, as you grow in your relationship with Jesus, it's going to come at you more often, and it's going to be more intense. And so know that the temptation is not the sin, and Jesus is our example. And so the Word became flesh, and he dwelled among us. He dwelt among his people that he created. Why would God humble himself and live among his creation? Why would God humble himself? Well, you can find quite a few reasons in Scripture. I'm only going to hit a few of them. And as Daniel kind of pointed out, contrary to popular belief, Jesus didn't come so we could all get along or to restore social justice. The Word became flesh, first and foremost, to demonstrate the righteousness of God. Let this sink in for a second. The Word became flesh to demonstrate the righteousness of God. Did he come for love? Yes, he came for love. Did he come to rescue? Yes, he came to rescue. But you can't overlook the truth of Romans 3, 25 and 26. God put Jesus forward to show his righteousness so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. We don't have time to break this down completely today, but God is perfect. And because of his perfection, He demanded a sacrifice for sin. And so Jesus was put forth to demonstrate just how holy and perfect and righteous God truly is. And then, as I said, Jesus came also to be an example for us, an example for humanity. And the Word became flesh to show God's love for his creation. Luke 19.10 says that the Son of Man came to seek and to save or to rescue the lost Jesus came for those reasons as well, and so many more. But Jesus came for a purpose, to seek and to save, to reveal God, to show God, to appease the wrath of God. And then verse 14, John goes on to say and builds on this truth, and the word became flesh, and he dwelled among us, and he says, we have seen his glory. All right, that's important. We John says, he's talking about himself, he's talking about the inner circle, the apostles, the witnesses. We have seen his glory. John is not speaking about a concept or an idea. He's not talking about some deity far off that he learned about in a temple or going through some religious activity. John says that he knew Jesus, he'd seen Jesus. And he makes this clear in 1 John, another book that John wrote, Verse 1, he says, we have seen him with our eyes, we have looked upon him, we've touched him with our hands concerning the word of life. So he says, look, I was there. John is the last man standing. He's the last living apostle. And he's saying, we were there. For three years of ministry, we were there with Jesus. We ate breakfast with Jesus on the beach. We talked to him. We hugged. We cried together. We laughed together. He said he was there with them. And why is that significant? It's significant in so many ways. But let me ask you this. Is there anybody in life that you've been around for three years that you walk away saying, you know, they could be God, right? They're pretty good. They could be deity, all right? I'm around people. You're around me for three minutes. You realize my weakness and my frills and my sins. But three years, 
John was with Jesus for three years. And he says, not only was Jesus his best friend, but this guy was more than a man. This guy was deity. He was God come in the flesh. And so it's significant that he says, I've seen him in his glory. And we have seen him in his glory. You know, people seek glory, don't we? We seek to be glorious, but Jesus, he says, was glorious. He says, we've seen him in his glory. We've seen him. And so he was an eyewitness testimony to Jesus, who was a man, but almost so much, also so much more than a man. He was God in the flesh, and he displayed God's glory. There were some very tangible ways where John, with his eyes, with his physical senses, saw Jesus display his glory. Think about the Mount of Transfiguration, where he saw Jesus in his glory. At his baptism, he saw Jesus in his glory. At his resurrection and ascension, he saw Jesus in his glory. But it wasn't just in the external things he saw, but it was the internal glory that displayed the presence of God as well. It was the internal glory. Think about this. Think about in the Old Testament, during the times of the temple and the tabernacle, where God's glory was there. And people went to the temple, and they went to the inner, and the priests went into the Holy of Holies, and there the Shekinah glory of God was found. The glory just resonated from that place because God allowed his presence to be revealed in a, in a very practical, specific way in, the, in, in that area. And that's what John's getting at here. He's getting at the fact that Jesus, who walked these dusty first century roads, he showed the glory of God. He revealed the glory of God out of his person, out of his character, who he was, who he is. And so this, John says, makes Jesus so much more than just a man that we walked around with. In verse 15, he says, glory, I'm sorry, verse 14, the end of verse 14, glory as, the, of, as of the only son from the father. So Jesus wasn't just a son as some cults, some religions teach that he was a son of God. We can all be sons of God. He says he was the son of God. And he was exactly in nature and in character like his father in all attributes. Jesus was of the same essence of God is what he's getting at. The same nature as God. And, and so he was son. How was he son? He was son in the sense of God revealed himself. You realize this? God could have revealed himself in any manner he wanted, right? He could have revealed himself in any way that he could, would want to pick. But he chose, get this, he chose to reveal himself in a relationship between father and son. Between father and son. And, and that was no accident. And, and what a challenge for us as dads to realize that in some way, shape, or form, we have the responsibility to point people to the great and perfect Father in our humble, stumbling around in the dark way of living as a father. And this relationship between a father and son, God is the ultimate. He's the perfect father. And Jesus, as we walk through this gospel and we see Jesus interact with his father, with his dad, the relationship that they they wanted to establish that picture for us, And we can understand how we should relate to our children. And if you have daddy struggles, and if if your dad was not there the way that you hoped he would have been there for you, and he wasn't a spiritual leader in your home, you can look to the good and ultimate father, which is God the Father. And you watch how Jesus interacted with God the Father, and you say, well, 
there's what I was missing, and I find that in God. I find that in the perfect Father God. What, an, what a beautiful picture, Father and Son, that God gives us. And He is the Son, the unique, one-of-a-kind Son. And so we relate, and we see, and we can grasp hold a Father and a Son. And He says in, in verse 14, He says He's full of grace and full of truth. Full of grace and full of truth. Pause here for a second from looking at the passage and just ask a real honest question. Does grace and truth reflect your brand of Christianity right now? Does grace and truth reflect your brand of Christianity? You see, we struggle in big ways with that balance. It's hard. It's hard to know. We were talking about it in the shepherding class for dads this morning, how that to give truth in a way and, and the age the child is at in a way that won't alienate our child or push our child away because we're doing it with grace, but at the same time, we're not being silent or overlooking sin and not speaking the truth that God has given us through his word. We speak boldly, but we do it with grace. And so God's grace, it offers love and compassion, but it offers it, get this, this is the true side, to guilty sinners. He offers love and compassion to guilty sinners. So his truth means that he warns of his judgment. And if sinners do not repent and believe in him, they will perish forever. That's the true side. But his grace just extends to us. And so we usually tend to err on one side or the other. We err on the side of all grace or so much grace that we won't speak up about truth, or we're all truth and heavy-handed and, 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 and hard to deal with because we're all truth. And God says, he, that Jesus was the perfect balance. He, he was full or just filled up with grace and truth, full of grace and truth. And these must work together. It's the heart of the gospel. Amazing grace, right? How sweet the sound that saved the wretch, right? The wretch like me. Grace, amazing, but we're wretches. We need truth. We need the truth that John 3.18 Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. You're already under the condemnation. That's the true side that we need to talk about, that we need to state, but we do it with grace. God's free and unmerited favor shown toward guilty sinners who deserve only judgment. Grace, God's free, his unmerited favor. We don't deserve it. We don't earn it. We deserve only judgment. I love this illustration of grace and truth that I read because it's hard to get our minds around how do we practically live this out. And this illustration said, think of a mother with her child. If the child has a dirty face, the mother doesn't scold the little child for having a dirty face, does she? She does the loving thing. She gets out the washcloth or you know, licks, her, licks her thumb and she begins to gently apply the soap and water. And while she's doing this, what, what you may have done this yourself or said, you know, what a dirty face you have. Tell me, how did you get so dirty? But you're saying it even as you clean the dirt off of the little face. All the time you're washing the child's face. There's grace, but there's truth. The getting out of the washcloth, even while we're talking about the dirt. I hope that illustration will set, stay in your mind. 
with your children, with those you deal with, with that person at the office who you can't stand because their ideas are so left out there crazy. I can't believe what they think. And you just want to just throw some truth at them. You literally may want to throw your Bible at them, hit them over the head. And God says, you got to get the washcloth out and you got to start cleaning and you're gentle and you're talking. How did you get the dirt? Let me tell you, your face is dirty, but I love you enough. I want to do in grace and clean and help you. That's what we've been called to do. And that's who Jesus was. He was full of grace and truth. And then he goes on to say that God supplies what we need to be conformed into the image of his son. Look what he says, verse 16. For from his fullness, this fullness of grace and truth that exists in him, we all have received grace upon grace. We've just received grace in place of grace. That's the actual word there, grace in place of grace. What is that talking about? Well, think about this. Go out and stand by the Flint River, okay, on a day that is the current's moving. You're looking there, and I say, what do you see? And you say, I see water. But do you see the same, stare at the spot, do you see the same water? No, that water is gone. New water comes in. And that's the picture. Grace against grace, grace over grace, grace on grace. It's just flowing. And the grace that we need for the moment, for this moment, that is past because that moment God has come through. But now more grace is flowing from the next situation, the next struggle, the next person that we deal with that we just have impatience with. There's just grace upon grace. And so the fullness of Jesus' grace, grace and truth is available to us. He says it's flowing upon grace upon grace. And he says it's what we need in order to be conformed, to be more like Christ. If we went back to verse 12 from last time where he said all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. And that's what he's getting at here. This, this, this grace that flows enables us to become more and more like himself. That we're declared sons and daughters by believing and receiving. But he's not settling for just the fact that we've made that commitment to him. But he continues to give the grace that we need to make us more like himself. Because he's full of grace and truth. And he's flowing grace upon grace upon grace. And we stand under the fountain. And we say, God, I'm receiving that grace that you've given to me. And that supply is never exhausted. It never runs out. So John now, in verse 17, moving here quickly, he now contrasts. He loves contrasts. Light and darkness. Truth and lies. Now he contrasts the law versus grace and truth. Look what he says. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. What was he saying there? Is he discounting the law? What is he getting at? What he's getting at is the fact that God's truth was only partially revealed in the Old Testament. It was only partially revealed in the Old Testament. Sure, God's holiness and his sovereignty were revealed through the law. And this moral law existed that showed who God was. But what was missing that came in Jesus was the full revelation. And rather than me talking about it, let me just read two of my favorite verses. Colossians 1, 26 and 27. He says, Paul says, This mystery hidden 
for ages and generations, talking about Old Testament, talking about the law times, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. It was a mystery, but now it's revealed, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ was the full and complete revelation. And his grace, he's full of grace, and the grace flows. And not only do we get to believe and receive Jesus, but Scripture tells us that Christ in us is the hope of glory. Hello? Do we believe that? Christ in us. So when we face a problem, or we are in a difficult stage of life, or life has fallen just apart, and you think there's no hope, where are you, Jesus? If you're a child of God, he's in you. And that's the hope of glory. And not only is he in you, he's given you grace upon grace to conform you to Jesus Christ. And the situation that you're in is not an accident. God didn't wake up and say, how did that happen? Yes, we live in a broken world that's not functioning the way that God originally intended. And sin has wrecked havoc upon this creation. But God is restoring us as his children. And he's using whatever means necessary in order to conform us to Jesus Christ. Because he will not allow us to say we're a Christian and to have Christ in us and not be conformed into the image of Christ. He won't do it. He won't stop. He doesn't quit. He keeps on. And that's why sometimes we look around and we say, I haven't seen so-and-so in years. Where are they at? Well, they just they don't, they don't come be part of the body anymore. What's going on there? You see, the church, the church community is a means of grace, a fountain of grace that pours out upon us. And it's one of the places where we go and we stand under and we say, I need your grace upon grace in order to live in this world the way you call me to live. But you can't do that without community, without body, with a body, without a body. And I don't get it when people say, well, you know, there's too many hypocrites at church. You know, they're fakes. I can just worship God at home. Hello? Yes, it's true. Join. You'll fit right in, right? I mean, truthfully, we need one another in our imperfections, in our weaknesses, in our stumbles. We need each other to sharpen us because if it's all ease and everybody's great and easy, then how does that make us more like Jesus Christ? When Jesus said, love your enemies and pray for those who treat you terrible and despise you, in that you become more like Jesus. And so we, we embrace the body of Christ knowing, assuming, expecting people to hurt us and to, to say things that are going to rub us the wrong way, that may not agree with 100% of your opinions on everything that's going on in the world. Celebrate it. We live in such a polarized culture that anybody who has one degree of difference from us on any issue, we just cancel them. We're, we're done with them. They're in heresy because they don't sing the same songs that I sing, right? Hello, they're singing about Jesus. They're, they're celebrating Jesus, all right? We may have some issues, but there are allies. In a world full of enemies, we need our allies. We need those who have Christ in them, the hope of glory. So I'm okay with overlooking fairness for the sake of love and grace upon grace and upon grace. In Fight Club, sharing 
each other's burdens and carrying each other's burdens, confessing your sin one to another. Instead of saying, oh my goodness, did you hear what they said about their life? That's what we do on Sundays, right? Oh, can you believe that? He did that, she did that, she wore that. But in community, and in tight community, my brother says, here's what I've been struggling with, and I don't go, really? I say, man, how can I help you? How can I be here for you? How can I support you? Man, I don't want to see you destroy your life, truth. I'm going to love you. I want to get out that washcloth and help you. Grace upon grace upon grace. Under the fountain of grace, God gives himself to us. Let's pray. Father God, your word is amazing. And we thank you that we can just take time out of our our lives, just sit here and allow your word to just be the fountain over us and the Holy Spirit just taking the word and just applying it in our lives, God. And I pray that we won't just leave it here, God, that we will be conduits, as we talked about a few weeks ago, a conduit of your grace and allow this to flow out to those around us, those in our groups, those we have relationship with, those in our office, those in our home. God, help us to be ministers for you, ambassadors for you, to display the grace that you've so richly given to us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.